everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. And this week, we have a very lovely guest with us. We have Bethany Stevens here to talk about sexuality and disability, something that we've never covered on the podcast before. So Bethany, I would love to learn more about you, maybe introduce yourself to our listeners uh, and tell them about all the great things you do. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Um, It has been quite a journey to get here because we had to get through the election uh, (laughs) drama. So excited to finally meet with you virtually. Um, My background, I started out in law school, actually. I wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to be um, really into civil rights around disability work. Um, I decided at the age of 20, I'm a disabled woman, I decided at the age of 20 I was going to dedicate my life to the social change of people with disabilities, really trying to uplift people with disabilities. So I thought law was the answer. And then I realized in law school, no, 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 my dear, that is not the answer. And in 2005, so this speaks to how old I am, I hosted a conference. I know. (laughs) I just (laughs) celebrated 40. Thank you. Ah, in the pandemic. Um, And so in 2005, I hosted a conference at the University of Florida where I brought a former adult film star to the campus, Bridget the Midget Powers. And so it rocked the campus. Um, There were op-eds written for several days. It went on for a, a good week about this. And I just realized this is what I need to do. I'm the most comfortable talking about sex. And my life just sort of switched. So I went to San Francisco, which is a great place to study sexuality. And I got my master's degree in sex there, um, sexuality studies, that is. And then I moved to Atlanta, worked under a former Surgeon General, Dr. David Satcher, to study sexual health. And now I'm working on my PhD in sociology to continue focusing on sexuality with people with disabilities, particularly focused on pleasure, which is so exciting because I have spent the majority of my career, the last 20 years, focused on going after those barriers. And now I want to say, yes, we need to take down those barriers, dismantle these issues that are social constructs primarily and hurt a lot of people. But like, can we have some fun too? And pleasure activism, Adrienne Marie Brown's book really has just rocked my brain. And so that's what my dissertation is going to be focused on. I spend a lot of time talking about sexuality. I have a YouTube channel where I talk about sex and I blog and I'm just, um, I'm always ranting about sex, so I I am that girl. Well, you're in the right place. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so glad you came here, and congratulations on your PhD. That's definitely not um, an easy mountain to climb. Um, Not in a pandemic. It's (laughs) it's exhausting, but thank you. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm really interested to just pick your brain and learn a little bit more about sexuality and disability and something that we talked about a little bit before we started recording was um transibility and maybe what that is so would you like to maybe define what that term means and how it relates to sexuality and um disability in general for sure um so when i was working on my master's degree 
um, at San Francisco State University, I started studying transability. Um, and so transabled people are those with um, no physical disabilities, but need to be disabled. They know internally they are disabled. And I came across this because um, frankly, I was a goofball who didn't know gender was beyond a binary, moved to San Francisco, met a bunch of genderqueer people and trans folks, and my mind was exploding. And I was wondering, how does this work with disability? Stumbled upon this topic and interviewed a fellow who had been living um, or has been living uh, as a wheelchair user for now over 15 years. Um, even though he's not paralyzed. And so the, the interesting thing that I really wanted to explore around this topic, and I, I wrote a piece, my thesis was about this, and it's published, um, and it's open access, and I can give you a link so that you can put it in your notes. Um, but basically what I was looking at is this idea that we continue socially, we're really hung up on why would anybody ever want to be disabled? Why, what is wrong with this person? Instead of ever thinking about what is the somatic truth or the embodied truth of the person. Um, and also really thinking about what is triggering that question of why do people not wanna be disabled? And really isn't that a, a value statement on disability rather than other issues. So it really, for me, became um, more about wanting to celebrate the art of disability through seeing transability. And I've been interviewed about this because a lot of disabled people, some of them, have a lot of anger because um, toward transability or transabled people because they get to choose when they are going to be disabled. So there's pushback from people with disabilities about the idea that they have a choice when they are going to perform or embody their disabilities. And so there's pushback and there's this desire to not include them in the disability experience. And for me, I say, let's welcome whoever under the tent because the reality is the majority of people who live long enough are going to acquire disabilities. These people, regardless of whether we wanna like embrace transability as an identity, there is a mental health disability, so they are our family. So I, you know, I say welcome them. And so I've spent a lot of time with that and it's definitely something that I, um, clash with other disabled people about because of that issue of choice. But just sitting there interviewing the individual for so long, the pain that he had around like who he is and um, how like reconciling his internal identity uh, with his body, that pain was so visceral and it was so reminiscent of many trans narratives that I didn't want to just like erase that emotion. I mean, as, as a researcher, I'm listening to the story, I'm empathizing, and I'm trying to figure out the truths there. And 
there there was there's a, a level of commitment that these transabled folks engage with that I yeah it's a fascinating issue one that I have left behind I published in 2011 and I haven't touched it since but people still ask me about it and I recently met some folks at an amputee conference um, about a two years ago who had selectively amputated so um, I would like to continue that research but my wife is like why don't you focus on something that would be healthier for you and focus on pleasure because that makes you happier instead of going down these potentially dark and circuitous paths so she's smart she's trying to get me to get out of the program <laughs> with <my> sanity <laughs> well you definitely want to do what you love and follow you know where your passions lead you so sometimes you have to have that boundary of respecting your own peace and sanity and maybe pass the baton to someone who is more like fresher in the game, has a lot more energy and, and zhuzh in life and is young and hasn't been hit with the world yet. Exactly. <laughs> the youth part is very useful, but there's a whole handful of wonderful scholars that are doing great work on this. Alexandra Barrel, B-A-R-I-L, out of Canada is doing a bunch of research and he's a trans man. So I think that that really gives a different perspective than what I'm offering, although there hadn't been a disability perspective written about transability. So that was useful. No, but, absolutely. Yeah, but I'm, I'm happy to be back on pleasure because really orgasms and chasing those are just, you know, I'm all about the WAP, you know. I think everyone is now. And I'm so glad that that's the mood. Uh, I think we all right? need it. Yeah. Mm. And I'm so excited to get to touch on that subject in a little bit. But just for people who have never, ever been exposed to even the notion of abled body versus disabled body, if sure. we're going to give some examples of what like transibility is in a trans, would you call it like a transabled body or how would you determine what that is? Well, so first, um, transabled people, it's a really small population. So when we talk about the persons with disabilities population, we're looking at a, probably about 25% of the U.S. population. So it's a large number. 1% um, of the population are wheelchair users. So that's what I am. Um, so transabled people are even a smaller percentage. So really there's not even enough numbers right now to get a good qualitative study. So there was one study that was done by Dr. Michael first, and I think it had eight subjects and that was huge to have eight subjects. So when we're thinking about the spectrum of disability, transibility is really just a small piece, but I think what's really useful for people to think about is that disability is not me. I think people get so hung up and not just me. I mean, I'm adorable and everybody loves me or they should, but um, really it's, we get stuck on the wheelchair symbol. And I think it may be because of the parking placard, um, because we get stuck on access only being about a ramp, but really disability is the way people process things. It's uh, just, you know, I, the majority of people with disabilities have what are termed invisible disabilities 
or um, non-visibly apparent. So a lot of mental health disabilities, sensory disabilities, um, lots of learning disabilities. So the majority of my comrades in the movement, I can't even tell if they're disabled or not. Um, and I think what's important about that is that, you know, again, I get struck by how often people are like, I don't know disabled people. Like, I just, I've never experienced that. What do I even say? And I'm like, homie, you live in life. You are around disabled people. You just don't know. You, they haven't disclosed their diagnoses to you because it's stigmatized heavily. And we should talk about ableism, why it's stigmatized. Um, but yeah, I mean, so really just trying to understand that the reality of disability is that a very small percentage of us have visibly perceptible disabilities and really trying to expand what that is. And I think really embracing more of neurodivergence, which is one of the terms that we're using in the disability world, um, just thinking about cognitive differences, anything from autism spectrum disorders um, to, you know, just any kind of mental health uh, diagnosis. Like I have generalized anxiety and depressive episodes, right? So um, can't tell that, but that's here. Um, yeah, so I, I think people really, that's the thing that I, excuse me, I struggle with or I work with because along with teaching sexuality for the past um, 10 years, I've been teaching in university settings. Um, I also teach disability studies and that's something that I just struggle to get across to people because they, they really get stuck on the wheelchair. And so trying to expand that, it's really like, it blows their mind. Example, I was teaching a class in 2019, a class on sex and disability in um, Ohio. I was a, a disability scholar in residence and I gave them a piece of a graphic novel on a person with bipolar disorder and it blew their little minds. One girl started crying because she didn't know that that was a disability. And then I'm not really sure why, but then it triggered an, uh, I don't know, I'm grateful my mom didn't abort me. And that was uncomfortable. I, but that was like the political notion of the day we were talking about abortion in the state. So that's why it came up sort of, but <laughs> which is always fun because I'm not a therapist and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of emotions. I'm just here to talk about sex, but let's pull you back. <laughs> I'm back, baby. You're going to be okay. And so they're to like hold their hand metaphorically and tell them, yes, you're okay. You have a diagnosis and no, your mom didn't abort you. Not sure what the okay. <laughs> yeah. But really, I mean, the, the fact that a diagnosis that you, I think in common knowledge, we would know bipolar is a disability, but having it in front of a student and having them with a mental health diagnosis realize that's a disability 
And these are students, by the way, who were getting uh, minors in disability studies. And this, is what, this was their culminating experience. So they had been through multiple classes in disability studies and then still hit that moment where I, I was just like, oh my gosh, guys, you need a bigger definition of disability. So. No, and I think that that's super representative of like the binary that's placed on society between you know, abled bodies and disabled bodies. And you're either one or the other and there's no spectrum. And I see this a lot in a lot of common definitions and like social norms and social constructs where you're either black or white and then that's it. There's nothing in between. You cannot be, you know, like, I'm not sure if this is a term, but like a high functioning disabled person or, you know, it's it's a visible disability or it's a mental disability. Um, but I even think the terminology in in relation to disability is so heavily stigmatized. So I think nobody wants to have something quote unquote wrong with them. Right. Um, but I do think that that's super important to start having conversations around. Um, but tying it back because we are a sexual health podcast, Ooh. I would love to know kind of some common things and stigmas that you see associated with um, disabled individuals and sexuality or sexual pleasure or sexual health, um, maybe sure. some common misconceptions that able body people maybe understand or even, you know, disabled individuals who are exploring their sexuality might not necessarily know until it happens to them. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you bring up a, the, a really good point at the, the, the last part of that sentence about disabled people and their experiencing this too. Um, internalized ableism is an incredible beast. So I just want to um, define ableism before we move on. So ableism, like racism or homophobia, works in two ways. So like with racism, it elevates whiteness as the normal, um, the preferred, the natural. And so too, disability is uplifted as the normal, the preferred, the natural, what we're all aspiring to be. And so we don't want to be broken. We all want to be fixed, right? We don't ever want to just live in our bodies as they are. And then the other part of that, just like with racism, there's the push down, the devaluing of um, people of color, so too with disability. And so it legitimates violence and discrimination and all sorts of just gross assumptions and denials of our humanity. So when we're talking about sexuality myths, the first one that is just flagrant is the assumption that if you presume a disability, a physical or a visible disability, it's, it's basically just like you were talking about the binary. So with a physical disability, we are presumed to be not sexual people. So we are desexual. And um, many theorists also uh, argue that we are degendered. So we are sort of culturally neutered um, in many ways. Um, so we're more perceived as an object to be taken care of rather than a partner that's valuable and has something to give. And then there's for mental health and other forms of neurodivergence, there's a presumption of hypersexuality. And so there's an assumption of sexual monstrousness and 
like uh, inability to control compulsion. So either way, we are sexually monstrous and we need to be controlled. And um, we can see this working out in policy, you know, as a, a I'm, I'm actually barred in the state of California as an attorney. So I do have, um, I, I followed through that path in case this whole sex rock star thing doesn't follow through, go back to California and be a lawyer and just suck it up. Um, but like looking at policy, it just, it reinforces this idea that we need protection. Um, we are not agentic. Um, so that manifests and we can see this as another myth is that we're not good spouses or good parents. So on like, uh, just on its face as a disabled person, having a child, that child can be taken away from you. Um, or you can go through arbitration, um, to have that child, the, the state has an interest in taking the child away from people with disabilities because there's an assumption that we are not good parents. We have nothing to give to um, children. So there's, there's that. And then I, I want to add one more, and that's for the partners of people with disabilities. They're either presumed to be saints or um, lecherous and so gross. So they're either taking advantage of us or they've sacrificed their sex life to give to us. And so that plays out in microaggressions where, you know, the subtle commonplace indignities that people love to just do in public that really tell you where your place is in this uh, system of systems of power um, where people, for example, with my spouse will talk to her um, and not me. And I'm the more vocal one. Um, and so just really assuming that she's my carer, um, instead of my partner. Um, and you know, I've, I've there've been some experiences, like I was in a hot springs with one of my friends who's disabled and her husband, and it was a naked hot springs in California. Um, and some man, we're all naked and that's awkward enough. Um, I mean, I don't mind being naked, but, um, but he decides to start a conversation and tell my friend's husband that he's going to go to heaven because he's married to this woman and friends with me. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, I, and frankly, I've heard that so many times that it didn't even shock me, but it was just a little weird being naked and hearing that. And just, yeah, I mean, we still giggle about that, and that was years ago. So, I did want to go back um, to kind of the point I was making earlier about um, sexuality and being a disabled body, essentially, and what that experience is like for an individual and why sexual education is so important for them. Because even I myself, as a cis straight, white woman having sex for the first time that was a journey uh, that was an experience and getting better at sex and figuring out you know my journey through masturbation and like having different partners that was an experience and I didn't have a lot of comprehensive education so I can't imagine what it's like for a disabled individual right so okay so we know that comprehensive sex ed is just not 
<laughs> it's not widespread enough. Um, and thankfully, though, I have to say, my mother um, is a uh, retired nurse practitioner, um, OBGYN. So I grew up very sex positive. I I was giving sex advice at a living. <laughs> I mean, I was that that young person, um, you know, growing up in the nineties, I was very, very much into talking about safer sex and doing all of that stuff. Um, but that is not the experience of my peers. Um, and so when we're thinking about people with disabilities, it's really important to think about how, uh, diverse the population is. We intersect with every aspect of society, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation. So we are going to have people who are heavily dosed with um, religion and have a lot of shame around sexuality. Whereas there are people like me who were taught at a very young age, these are your genitals, you touch them, whatever. Like given that knowledge at a very young age. Um, and I mean, I remember at a, at a very young age, maybe 10, asking my mother how, because I'm three foot eight and I have brittle bones. That's what my disability is, um, osteogenesis imperfecta. And so I asked her, what kind of positions would I be able to get in? And she talked to me about that as a child. And I mean, I wasn't even masturbating at that age um, to orgasm anyway. Um, I had discovered that yet. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it was, I don't know. My mother was just, she was liberating in a lot of ways. But that, again, is not the experience of everyone. So it really depends on where people are in terms of what they've gotten. So. I have done um, many education. I've, I've, I've done many, many lectures. I did a retreat on sexuality where we went away in Michigan and spent multiple days. And I'll just tell you that the majority of people, I think, are like everybody else that are kind of just overwhelmed by sexuality. And we've had so much silence around sexuality that we don't really know how to talk about it. So my first step with talking to people is masturbation, learn your body and start talking about, give words to whatever that sensation is so that you can tell your partner. Um, and so you know, I, that process is something, but, um, the, the whole dating thing is a whole other realm of ableism, um, in terms of meeting partners and sustaining them. Um, so that is a whole, um, that's a whole process of just getting through the rigmarole of, I mean, it, it's just like dating in general. It's, half the people are trash and you just keep swiping. <laughs> but, um, right? But I think some people, like I, the last interview I did talking with somebody about this, I was asked about rejection. What do I tell people with disabilities about rejection? And well, we all get rejected. It's not because you're disabled. This is a crapshoot. You're rolling your dice and you keep rolling and you just keep moving. 
um, and see what you can do um, and finding a partner. But um, definitely there needs to be more comprehensive sexuality education to all people to be able to talk about these issues. But one thing that I think would be really useful in general is to have more media representation of diverse bodies where maybe they're not even dating, but they're just there so that we know people are people. And I'm like, we're not just there for a pivotal storyline to make you cry. We're there as, you know, actual humans to be a part of life. You know, I, 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 as I said, I've spent so many years teaching disability studies and these are primarily to people who don't identify as disabled. And the one thing that I am like trying to keep getting across to them is we're people with typical desires and the same kind of things as you. We're just living in different bodies and different minds. That's really like, we do have a different political situation. The oppression is real. So we don't want to say that everybody's the same because that depoliticizes ableism, but really just getting to this idea that yes, we're people, we need access to education and it's dangerous when we don't have education. It puts us at harm. No, absolutely. And I really, like to recognize that media recognition that you kind of noted a little a few sentences ago because i really think that people don't understand the value that media has on our understanding of individuals in general like people don't understand that media representation is sometimes people's only exposure to individuals who don't who aren't this social norm um they aren't heteronormative they aren't a white woman or man um, so this representation, and I think it's super prevalent in, unfortunately, a lot of like marginalized communities is they're always the like token disabled person, they're the, the token black person, they're the token uh, whatever it may be. And I think it's really important to start moving past these understandings and moving past these tokenizations and just having individuals who are people going through their own experiences. And I really loved um, your acknowledgement of like rejection. It's just, it is rejection. And like, if a person sucks and a person rejects you based on one thing or another, you don't want to be with that person either way. Um, I'm always a big, a big fan of rejection, like right off the bat. Cause I just don't want to waste my time. But, um, good for you. I did. I just kind of, <laughs> I did want to ask you because, and I don't want to cut this out. Um, because I have, been saying disabled bodies or disabled individuals and I was wondering if the better terminology was a person with disability or a person who is disabled is there a, a, a more appropriate or more like humanizing term that I should be using and I want to acknowledge this because I don't think a lot of people understand the value of the way we speak um, sure. and I would love to know what you think yeah, I mean, language is so important, just like media representation. It's the way we, it structures our emotions about the way we feel about people. If you, I mean, they're like stereotypes are built into discourse about the way we talk about people. So, um, so 
you ask me which label is preferred. And again, this is where the diversity of the movement is. It is like Groundhog Day in our movement in the disability world where <laughs> some people are people first, people with disabilities, and some people are disabled. And then there are some of us who identify as Crips. Um, and so Crip is, it comes out of Robert McCrewer's work. Um, he wrote a book called Crip Theory, which builds on queer theory. And so it's just really what it is, is just, you know, taking that thing that we're supposed to pathologize queerness and embracing it and like exposing it as a, like a fallacy that we're non-normative. And so, um, yeah, so Crip is basically a nice political punchback um, in the sense that it, 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 let me start that over. Um, let's see. Uh, it's, so it's a shortened version of the word cripple, which was derogatory or is derogatory. And it's been reclaimed and just like queer and it has that political resonance. Um, but again, there is no consensus on what works, but I would recommend people like with other folks with different identities, allow people to tell them like, uh, do they prefer people with disabilities or disabled people? I would encourage you to use one of those two, not use Crip because that's insider language. Um, and, uh, you know, people with disabilities or disabled people usually works. I just encourage people staying away from the disabled um, because it's it doesn't work. It's like the queers. Like, it, it's not, we're not a stack of disabled <laughs> people. Um, but, they, I, you know, there's growing, there's, there's a growing push toward identity first language and claiming disability because we recognize that ableism is a political force that's oppressive. Um, but there's still not consensus. And uh, one of the, one of the things I was getting to with the diversity of the community is another component is onset. So there are many people who acquire disabilities and that may change the way that they embrace the language, the culture. They may never even get to the culture component. Um, they may never even understand what the word ableism is after living as a disabled person for years because the language isn't widespread enough. So you have to be kind of a nerd to look for disability advocacy or disability studies to even engage with that knowledge. So some people don't have it until they gain disability access. And I tell you, it's radically transformative to engage with disability community. I just interviewed um, Selene Luna, who is a comedian who worked with Margaret Cho for a good 15 years. And she's a little person. She's three foot 10. She's um, in her mid 40s. And she didn't recognize internalized ableism until Donald Trump in 2016 made fun of a disabled person. And she didn't recognize that was ableism until then. And I was just blown away. That was this week that I just had that interview. And I, 
I mean, she's a brilliant woman. She's been doing this comedy. She's been talking about disability, but she'd never connected it to ableism because it had never been that profound in terms of how repugnant. <laughs> but um, so that uh, it, it's good we can all rally around and hate that man. So there's something that unites us all. <laughs> he really, really... Uh really sticks it to minority communities. So at least we can all just kind of come together and have a communal uh, <laughs> argument about this person. But no, thank you for that like understanding because I really do think, and it's something that I, as like a learning, you know, young individual want to continuously have conversations around because I don't think a lot of people feel comfortable even asking. But I do think that it's so important to ask and and to have those open conversations and be as respectful as you can to literally whoever you're talking to. Um, sure. I just, um, I, I want to say that like, you know, I have taught clinicians who are going to be sex therapists and these are brilliant folks and their big question is the language issue. And I really, I encourage people to meet people before they start asking all the different questions about identity. Let it unravel like you would another, any other kind of friend. Don't worry about getting the language wrong right away. Because if you, I think when you meet people and communicate with them as individuals, like I think it's easier than trying to meet a person and ask them what language they're comfortable with before you have the conversation because it's just a little awkward because you're like I don't want to be the spokesperson for disability all the time right um I am quite a lot but I'm not always an educator I definitely turn that hat off um which is why sometimes I'm angry at the people who ask me at elevators if I can reproduce but um <laughs> I don't blame you I don't nobody asks me if I can reproduce they don't know they don't care so it's just so, it's so very frustrating, but that is why I did want to put this question kind of in the middle of the conversation, sure. um, because this is one of the only, um, or very few conversations that I have had with an educator in this field. And I really, I, I really want to make room for mistakes, um, and allow people to understand that it's okay to make mistakes and we are allowed to be quote unquote forgiven if it's something that we do. And if it's something that we're not educated about, I think it's really, really important to have those real life interactions or virtual interactions um, and have those conversations. And my number one thing is like always respect. Um, and I, like, even if I, for the last, you know, 25 minutes made essentially like a grammatical boo-boo. We have that mutual respect. I feel like you felt comfortable enough to have that conversation with me and let me know where I can quote unquote, right my wrongs, which I think is super, super important, especially for people who are just new to this, you know, industry or even just new to learning about, you know, different individuals and learning beyond normativity and, heteronormativity. So I really, really appreciate you being so gracious with the way you explained it to me. And it was not patronizing and it wasn't aggressive. Um, but I think that's also <laughs> the nature of our conversation. So um, I'm really glad that we kind of were able to discuss that. 
But I'm really excited because this is, I think, my favorite topic to discuss is pleasure activism um, and why you're so passionate about discussing this. Because honestly, I started masturbating when I was 20. So I was so late to the game. And boy, has it been the best year of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But... I was very late to it. I had a nonprofit about sexual health before I was masturbating. That's wow. something. I love it. <laughs> I love it that you were ahead of your body. <laughs> I was two different people living two different lives. But I really want to kind of expand on the conversation about like why pleasure activism and why are you so important? Why do you feel so passionate about having these conversations? Well, you know, okay, so pleasure is just life affirming. I, so, and I said before how I've spent so many years just discussing these social problems and it's mentally exhausting. And then I came across, so there's a piece in Pleasure Activism by Audre Lorde, um, uh, power of the erotic and that was one of the pieces that triggered this desire to really get at what does the erotic do to inspire regenerative like i'm just looking at how it is inspiring of movement inspiring of possibility really. Um, And that's what she was talking about. Audre Lorde is really just like how once you are aware of your erotic possibilities, the doors just open up to your whole life to where you start thinking, well, if I can have this orgasm, maybe I should have a better job. And maybe I can have the lover that I want. And maybe all of these aspirations need to like explode. So it's 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 breaking the glass ceiling it's 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 just really and it's putting the agency in the hands of the individual where they can release themselves which i think is really exciting and i know for a lot of people masturbation is hard to do in terms of getting over that shame um that that acculturated shame that we've been taught many of us have been taught Um, And it's even with our breathing. I know a lot of people tend to hold their breath and want to bear down. And I think some of that is just like, we're supposed to be quiet because whatever, we're hiding what we're doing. And I am really into teaching my students tantra breathing to try to enhance their orgasms because my idea, what I teach them, and it's not just my idea, I'm not whatever. I'm not a pioneer. Um, I'm just a dutiful student of all of these other people. But um, basically, if we take the lessons from disability about sex, it can be really empowering to every other body and mind. So example is moving away from non um, or from goal directed sex, so that we can just enjoy the buffet of pleasure. I teach students about how we have this step-by-step approach to sex where it's like fondle, kiss, 
blah, 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 orgasm. And what if it was a wheel and we orgasmed and we kept going? I mean, like, what if we deconstructed those steps to make it more expansive to allow for different kinds of bodies to, you know, be in space and be who they are? And the example that I use is this wonderful guy who's a, a fellow sexologist, um, a tantra uh, expert who lives in the Bay Area, Rafe Biggs, and he's a quadriplegic, and he has, through intentional breathing, um, focused the sensate capacity from basically his penis to his thumb. And so he can have people suck on his thumb and he can have what he equates to um, an orgasm. And there is research that has been done, fMRIs, um, that we can have orgasms just through mind work alone. And it's just, it's remarkable stuff. And um, also one thing that's uh, interesting with the fMRI stuff, um, there's, there was a study that was done about women with spinal cord injuries and they retained their ability to have um, orgasm because for some reason it circumvents the spinal cord, whereas that doesn't work for men to have the uh, typical orgasm. So it's interesting. There's just so much going on with the body, but I think the idea that you can re through intentional breathing, meditative breathing, you can change the sensate focus of your pleasure. It's just brilliant. And, um, you know, I, I lost somebody I love very much to suicide. Um, I'm very sorry. Thank you. Um, it was years ago. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I loved him quite a bit and I, I, I was wanting to move to Norway when I was younger and I don't even like the cold. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a weather bigot actually. And I was just in love with this man, but um, he committed suicide because he was having erectile dysfunction stemming from a spinal cord injury. And he had been living with this for 16 years. And, you know, he called me before I was a sexologist and I told him, you know, about this idea that you can have sexual pleasure before I knew Rafe Biggs. I just told him about what I like and that's like being bitten on my shoulders. That can give me almost the same experience as a clitoral orgasm. And I also told him, you know, you can have chemical injections to have an erection. You can still do a lot of pleasing, like... There's nothing functionally wrong. It's, you know, but it was too late. He was too focused on his penis. And I think that that's a trap for a lot of people to get too focused on these supposed normal functions. And it's just limiting to all of us because frankly, why aren't we all licking every part of each other's bodies and figuring out that yes, the back of the knee is an incredible erogenous zone. Please keep licking there. Um, you know, like why, why are we so stuck on genitals? Like I tell people to do a pleasure map with their partners or themselves and go over every aspect of their body with different kinds of touch and so they can find those erogenous zones. And that's a really great exercise for partners getting to know each other's bodies and really just get to know your own body. 
go over it with feathers and different kinds of touch slaps. It's fun. So I really just encourage people to break the box of ability because it's disabling, which is funny because it's just, it's a trap. I think that, you know, normativity is a trap and we don't, have to be trapped by it because the reality is none of us are particularly normative we don't like we don't fit there's something that's off about us all and that's kind of lovely no I, I yeah you brought up a lot of really important points and I think that understanding sex and sexuality is not this like linear thing and it's not there isn't one way to do anything and like we now know so much about well, I would say so little. If we prioritize sex 100 years ago, we definitely have a lot more advances, you know, in science and in our understanding of what our bodies can do and all the great things that they can do. But yeah, I really think it's important to really dismantle this notion of like genital stimulation and orgasms, especially for penis uh, owners with ejaculation. They think that that's an orgasm. And Technically, it's not. The orgasm comes a little bit before ejaculation, but because it's like one swift motion, they're like, oh, yeah, ooh, it's, it's over. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I like really appreciate that understanding. And I think that people also forget that our brain is our biggest sexual organ. Um, and so it's not your genitals, it's your mind. Uh, so you can kind of – I'm a very much fake it till you make it type of gal. So if you trick yourself enough, and if you try and unlearn these norms, eventually your body's going to react in a positive way. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, I just, sorry. I, I just had a, I just had a, a, a colleague reach out to me about low libido um, and she's worried and just, it was a long, long, long post. And I get these um, all the time from <laughs> people that are like, can I ask you a question? I never know if it's going to be legal or sexual. Um, <laughs> and so she, she just basically told me about her low libido and was like, her doctor told her it was all in her head and it was her problem. And I was like, honey, you, so you just got off birth control. You're going through a chemical change. I didn't call her honey, by the way. I'm not that patronizing. Uh, sometimes I am. <laughs> um, but I told her, like, you've got to nurse your sexuality back. You're in charge of you, and you get to, it's, you've gone through a move, you got a birth control, you had a relationship change, that's all stress, and that can change your pleasure capacity. But nursing your body back to orgasm, that's, that's for you. And I love the idea that it's in our hands. I wish more people, more women, um, more cis women because I, I'm, I meet so many young women who seem like they don't, they're afraid to masturbate and I just want to give them all sex toys and I give <laughs> lube and condoms to my students. And I mean, lube is a whole thing where I, I, I'm pretty sure young people don't know that there's, they can use lube or that it's okay. And so that was a whole revolution for my children in Ohio. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I want everybody to have pleasure. And so my last day of class, I went through a bunch of sex toys and, um, you know, I showed them 
everything, all sorts of things that they could have. And I gave them a, a Google Doc and I ran into a group of them later when they were all drunk and they were so excited about that Google Sheet and they were getting themselves graduation gifts and I was excited. Um, and I, I hope the, the few girls that were really struggling with it, I hope they've found some pleasure because it's it, it really struck me how it seemed like so many of them were waiting for somebody else to give them pleasure. And I, that I think is where we have a problem because they don't know what they're doing. We've all been without education. We don't know anything. So you have to practice. And that's the thing I love about sex is that practicing makes it all better. That's true with masturbation and that's true with having sex with your partners, um, that it just gets better with work no absolutely and i i i really love that because i do believe that everybody is entitled to pleasure um i just think it's different for every single body that's on this planet um so i really appreciate this conversation and really destigmatizing the notion of you know pleasure-based sex and what that is for every single body and, and what how that differs for every body um yeah. But I would love to kind of close off and ask for any resources or maybe where people can find you if they want to, you know, not stop you in an elevator and, and pick you <laughs> up via email or on a blog. Where do you want to plug? Uh, what do you want to plug at the end of this podcast? Where can people find you and learn more about you and the work you do? Yeah. Um, so uh, you could reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at disabethany, D-I-S-A. B-E-T-H-A-N-Y. And there I have a link tree for my YouTube channel where I'm interviewing fabulous disabled folks from all over the nation about our futures. I'm also asking them about the pleasures of disability. And I think it's really been exciting to push the idea of pleasure as an idea related to community because people are like, wait, am I having sex with my community? So I enjoy that kind of um, that moment. Um, and it's allowing me in the pandemic to meet new people, which is really great. Um, I really encourage checking out those interviews, but uh, you can connect through that. And then I'm also on Facebook and my website will be going up soon, disabethany.com. But I'm all over the internet. I'm easily found. Um, <laughs> there's and there's even nude work of me on the internet at various stages of my life. Um, I did live in San Francisco, so I had to uh, do some nude art. And I, I tell you, it really has fundamentally changed my belief about my body. And I recommend it to anyone to really get over issues around their body. It will immediately, like, I I was so freaked out about being naked with people. And then I did a naked art project with five people. And bam, now it's kind of ridiculous that I could be naked. Um, my wife is like, honey, yeah, go. We need, put your clothes on. Um, so... Uh, I mean, I'm not getting arrested. I'm not doing anything ridiculous, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a, and it, I think San Francisco was a great place to study sexuality. 
and it was before the tech boom, so it was still really queer and still really wild and fun. And so, yeah. You're doing everything that you need to do. No, thank you for that. And all of Bethany's links will be found on the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex Instagram account, so you can find everything there. Make sure to subscribe to the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast, and we will see you next Monday. <laughs>